Network. Debt, inflation, people losing their homes, losing their livelihoods, losing their liberties, losing the America they grew up in. And what are the headlines? Meghan Markle has to sit in the second row at the Queen's funeral because of her race and all of it based on lies. Well, here we are to clear a path of reality. Dan Newman. Have you ever seen as much finger pointing and blame gaming? As you're seeing today, I got to be honest with you. I've never seen in any election cycle, I've never seen so much vitriol, anger, and even hatred exhibited by those that are participating in a U.S. election. Now think about that for just a second. These are the people that are asking us, please elect me so I can go to Washington, D.C., so I can go to your state government's locations and serve you and then begin to demean anybody and everybody who disagrees with them. It's almost like people that are running for office don't understand that we see you. We know what you're doing. We know what your opponents are doing. We look at your life. We look back over your shoulder. We see what you did as you worked in some other capacity in government or even in private life. It's time for wannabe candidates, well, they're candidates, but they want to be elected officials, it's time they understand. We understand what's going on with you. Every time you open your mouth, we hear what's inside your heart. We look at the video clips that you put in your ads. We look at the news stories that you're a part of, and we understand we're capable. Now, listen to me. We are smart enough to get you. So stop it. Stop with all the anger. Stop with all the vitriol. Stop with all of the hatred. Just tell us what you believe and make us believe that you're telling us the truth. And if you can't do that, you're not worthy of serving us in whatever capacity you're asking us to elect you to fill. Well, good morning, everybody. Can you tell I'm a little hacked off? (laughs) I get this way pretty much before every big election and every midterm election, every presidential election, at least every two years. Elections are big deals. And in Louisiana, you probably don't know this, but our gubernatorial races are in off years. In other words, the other elections are in even numbered years, like uh, 2022. Well, our gubernatorial race is in 2023, and then it just goes in the, I don't know why we set it up that way. So what does that mean? That means we'll have vitriolic conversations (laughs) at TNN Live in a gubernatorial race before the presidential race in 2024. Well, if we live in America, the landscape may change a little bit, but what's inside the landscape very seldom changes. And you know what's at the core of all of this? It's what we base our thoughts and process and opinions on. There's got to be something deep down inside that you, you just trust. This is the foundation. This is the concrete. This is the things that can't change. They're part of my life. They're part of my psyche. They're part of my identity. And I've developed them through the years. Some of them may be good in your opinion. Some of them may be bad in your opinion, 
but they're mine. They represent me and the way I feel and think. That is fine with me. It used to be fine with everybody or most everybody. But boy, have we in the last few generations changed that. We're at a tipping point. I don't need to say that. You already know it. You look around every day. This morning, cops shot up in Connecticut. Two Connecticut cops killed this morning. Crime is everywhere. Crime is rampant. No place, no body is safe. When do you remember a time in your life where when you got ready to go somewhere, maybe it's early in the morning, the sun may not even be up, but you're going somewhere for a job interview. You're going to a meeting. You're going to work. And every time you get out of your vehicle, You're afraid and you start looking around and you've thought about on the way to this meeting or to your job, you've thought about what's between your car where you're going to park it and where you're going to go for the meeting or for your work. And is it safe? In some cities, in some cities around America, every person deals with that. They think about that and they deal with it and think about it every day. Two hero cops shot dead. A third one is injured in that horrible thing that happened this morning I mentioned in Connecticut. The incident unfolded on a street named Redstone Hill Road in Bristol, Connecticut after officers responded to an emergency domestic violence call. A bunch of law enforcement agencies went to the site Amid reports of an officer-involved shooting, the condition of the officer who initially survived the shooting is unknown, but state police say he sustained serious injuries. A resident told NBC in Connecticut that he heard two rounds of a dozen gunshots, while another resident spoke of his concern given Bristol's reputation as a safe area. It sounded like bang, 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 at least like a round of 12. Then it stopped for 30 seconds and then another round. All we heard were sirens. And when we heard the helicopter flying around from Page Park, especially Bristol is, I mean, a peaceful town. And it's scary to hear something like this is happening. The governor of Connecticut, Ned Lamont, He directed flags in the city be lowered to half-mast in the wake of the shooting, describing the incident as a senseless tragedy. We're, We're giving you these reports every day. I mean, it's like, it's Chicago. Seven days a week in every city, big or little, across the nation. Listen to this. Our community, Shreveport, Louisiana, was rocked by violence Tuesday when four separate shootings led to three deaths and a hospitalization. Now, I don't know what you know about Shreveport. It's a small, it's not really a little bitty town, but because there's a river that runs north and south through the east side of Shreveport and Bossier City, another city is right there when you cross the bridges, people think of Shreveport, Louisiana being bigger than it actually is. 140 maybe 150,000 people. Three deaths and a hospitalization overnight, night before last. The first call came from Mandolin Street in the Moortown neighborhood. When cops got there, they found a man shot to death. 
45 minutes later, a call about a shooting on Wall Street in the Highland area. A man was shot, ran to a nearby alley, was chased down and shot two more times. The victim later died. The third call came just a couple of minutes later. Cops arrived at the scene on Francois Drive of a shooting involving a woman who shot a man who allegedly charged at her. The man was taken to the hospital with life-threatening injuries. Still, don't know if he's going to make it. The fourth came about 9.30. Police were called to the scene at Patsman near North Holtzman. A man was walking down the sidewalk with his girlfriend. He got shot and killed right in front of his girlfriend. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure every one of these incidents and what happened up in Connecticut, there are reasons for it all. But do you ever remember, ever remember a United States of America where this is commonplace? People are just angry. People are mad and they don't know a constructive, positive way to handle it. And you know why, in my opinion, and I know this will shock you, but I have an opinion about a lot of things. In my opinion, our uh, politicians and our political environment and atmosphere are feeding this anger, this hatred, this, it's a spirit of vitriolic hate that's permeating our nation in many of these places. And no zip code is exempt just because of where it is. It's everywhere. This spirit, this sense is everywhere. And so how do our leaders, in large part, how do they handle this stuff? Well, almost every time, you can bet they're going to point fingers. Oh my gosh, it's their fault. This person did it, and here's why, and it's this group of politicians that are allowing it to happen because they don't care. And then everybody's got to find a way to blame someone else. Because Democrats today know that pretty much in the minds of the majority of Americans, they're completely untrustworthy when it comes to law enforcement. They've turned just about every major city into a rape and murder zone. They've made a choice to adopt this attitude. Now, is this a universal thing of Democrats? Do the Democrats have an exclusive? Heck no. There's no exclusive on this. It doesn't wear a political badge on its back. But, I mean, you've got to say the Democrats control the nation. White House, House of Representatives, the U.S. Senate, they operate, control every law enforcement agency top to bottom. Somebody's got to be responsible for allowing this spirit of hatred to flood across the nation. And I guarantee you, if it was confronted with good, it would not last. But the nation, our nation, has slipped in to anger and hatred and normalized. Now, there's always a political spin on everything. There really is. According to Democrat California Governor Nick Gavin Newsom, and then repeated twice this week in the Washington Post, It's the red states 
where all the evil is. <laughs> I'm serious. Violent crime is generally worse in Republican-run states, Gavin Newsom said, under the headline, It's Just Murder Living in a Red State. Oh, by the way, uh, those three in Connecticut, those two that have died, the one got shot early this morning, it's a blue state. Right here in Shrevesville, Louisiana, three dead Tuesday. Uh, That's Louisiana, right? Yeah. It's a red state, but it's run by a blue governor. So they're blaming it on conservatives now, are the Democrats. Source of the claim, the same one made by Newsom as a report published earlier this year by a leftist outfit called Third Way. The report said the murder rates are far higher in Trump voting red states than Biden voting blue states. And sometimes murder rates are highest in cities with Republican mayors. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Bristol. Democrat mayor of Bristol, Connecticut, where those two cops died. Shreveport, Louisiana. Democrat mayor, where those three people were shot. And three of them died. What does this mean? Well, to start the point in correlating crime and Democrat policies has never been that blue states are violent hellholes. It was always that Democrat mayors and district attorneys are demonstrably anti-law enforcement, which they are. Not all, but the majority are. And many of are more interested in racial equity than in prosecuting offenders. That's the switch that the psychological part of what we're dealing with, started a move in that direction. And then anti-cops, anti-law enforcement begin to feed it. And it grew, and it grew, and it grew. And we find ourselves in a nasty environment that I don't see a lot of leadership to get us out of it. Now think about what I just said. Mayors and district attorneys, these are local law enforcement people, elected officials who serve on the city and county levels, not even the state level. Of course, Republicans have tied every Democrat running for every office to this issue, but the exact line of attack was always in reference to county and city officials. With that in mind, let's look at the data compiled by that outlet third way. The report listed 10 states with the highest murder rates using data from 2020. In fact, the top per capita murder rate states in 2020 were mostly those far from the big urban centers and Democrat mayors and governors. Eight of the top 10 worst murder rate states voted for Trump in 2020. None of these eight has supported a Democrat for president since 1996. So, the authors of the report said that these red states are not generating murder as out-of-control national headlines. They seem to generate no headlines at all. But for this to be a devastating load to the Democrat suck-on-crime narrative requires ignoring that in every state, including otherwise red ones, there are densely populated areas that tend to be blue, 
And it just so happens, more often than not, that's where the surge in crime has taken place. The number one state on Third Way's list is Mississippi. Oh my gosh, Mississippi. You never hear anything about Mississippi. And if you have a conversation about it, somebody in the conversation is going to yawn with boredom. Sure enough, though, the statewide vote in the 2020 election in Mississippi was for Trump. But inside the state, Hines County, that's Jackson, the biggest city. Residents voted for Joe Biden. In fact, three to one. You know where this is going. (laughs) Reporting on Jackson, Mississippi last year, CNN declared it one of the deadliest U.S. cities. The mayor of Jackson is Chakwe Antar Lumbaba, a Democrat. The district attorney is Jody Owens, a Democrat. Number two on this list, get ready for it, Louisiana. Trump won Louisiana. Now we have a Democrat governor, but Trump won Louisiana. But on the more local level, he lost Orleans Parish. That's the parish that contains New Orleans, of course, the state's most populous city. Residents there went for Biden 8-1. to New Orleans had the highest homicide rate of any major city so far this year, with about 41 homicides per 100,000 residents. The mayor of New Orleans, she's in a lot of trouble herself, LaToya Cantrell, a Democrat. The DA there is Jason Williams, a Democrat. And then number three on the list, Kentucky, another red state that voted for Trump. But Kentucky's biggest city, Louisville, is in Jefferson County. 60% of those voters supported Joe Biden. This is from Kentucky-based think tank Pegasus Institute in August. They wrote this. In the last decade, the city of Louisville has seen unprecedented increases in shootings, homicides. 2020 became Louisville's deadliest year on record. 2021 has proven to continue that trend. The organization reported last year that Louisville's homicide rate was competing with the likes of Chicago and Philadelphia. Um, The mayor of Louisville, Greg Fisher, a Democrat. The district attorney, Thomas B. Wine, also a Democrat. Next on the list of states, Alabama, number four. Another 2020 red state. But Biden won the most votes in the most populous county, also called Jefferson. He won 56% to Trump's 43%. Within Jefferson is the city of Birmingham, who has the third highest murder rate in all of the United States. The mayor of Birmingham, Randall Woodfin, he's a Democrat, just like the district attorney, Danny Carr. Number five, Missouri, again, a Trump state. And again, with the county containing its biggest city, St. Louis, going for Biden 61% to Trump's 37. St. Louis has the fourth highest murder rate in the country. Mayor of St. Louis, Tashara Jones, a Democrat. County prosecuting attorney, Wesley Bell, a Democrat. Number six, South Carolina. Trump won that state. But Charleston County with the city of North Charleston went for Biden with 56% of the vote. 
North Charleston has the highest murder rate in the state of South Carolina. Finally, here we have a city with the mayor, Keith Summy, from the Republican Party. The county solicitor, Charleston, doesn't have a DA. Scarlett Wilson, also a Republican. Now, not that we're keeping score, and I know some of you were saying, hey, let me keep up with this. (laughs) We're not keeping score, but it brings the number on this list of Republicans who might feasibly be held accountable for raging crime in their cities to a grand total of two. For Democrats, it's so far 10. The next two states on Third Way's report, New Mexico and Georgia, they both went blue in 2020, so we'll skip them. Number nine, Arkansas, which was red. But once again, Pulaski County with the state's biggest city of Little Rock, it went blue with 60% of voters choosing Biden. Little Rock reportedly has one of the highest violent crime rates in the state. The mayor of Little Rock, Frank Scott, a Democrat. County prosecutor, Larry Jegley, also a Democrat. And finally, at number 10, I don't have a drum roll sound. Number 10, Tennessee, another red state with a major blue county that went for Biden. That county here would be Shelby. 64% of the vote in Shelby County going to Joe Biden. In Shelby is Memphis, biggest city in the state. According to the New York Times, is often ranked among the nation's most violent cities. Mayor of Memphis, Jim Strickland, a Democrat, Steve Mulroy, a Democrat, is the recently elected district attorney. To recap about this, where is crime, serious violent crime, where is it rampant, is it a Republican thing or is it a Democrat thing, of the eight red states listed in Third Way's report as being among the top ten with the highest murder rate, the cities where all that murder is happening are run almost exclusively by Democrats. All but one had a Democrat mayor, and all but one had a Democrat responsible for pursuing criminal prosecutions. So what does that mean? We've learned what I'm about to tell you. We've learned it over and over and over and over again. I said this even before Donald Trump became president when he was campaigning. I said, I said, anybody that is loud, they're running for office, they get elected and they start screaming and hollering, waving their arms around. Never listen to what they're saying. Never watch what's in their hand that they're waving around. The truth is almost always opposite of what they're telling us. What's at stake here? You know what's at stake here. What's going to have to happen to stop all of this horrible criminality that's sweeping across our nation, getting worse and worse and worse, even Little Town, Shreveport, Louisiana, three murders in one night. It never happens. And it's Shreveport, not even the biggest city, number three in size cities in Louisiana. No place is exempt. No place carries a political party pin. But in all these cities, the places where most of this horrible crime and people dying by violence 
or in red states governed by red people. People kill people. Did you hear that? People kill people. Guns don't kill people. Knives don't kill people. People pick up knives and people pick up guns and kill each other. There is a wave, a wave of evil that is permeating our nation and it's permeating our people, our citizens. We have got to, as Americans, we've got to say to our leaders, enough is enough. Stop it. Make it stop. We need to be protected. You have law enforcement structured from top to bottom. We fund it top to bottom every year. We give you the resources you need. You say you want to do it. Stop letting people get away with breaking laws, especially violent laws. Stop trying to manipulate and make it okay for people to commit crimes. Stop sending the message that it doesn't really matter what kind of criminality you have in your life and what you exercise in your community. The law enforcement people aren't going to hold you accountable, or if they do, it'll be with a slap on the hand. Nowadays, you won't even have to post bail to get out after you're arrested. Just go to the police station, fill out some paperwork. You'll be back on the street in a couple hours. That's happening around the nation. If you want to stop crime, hold criminals accountable for the crimes they commit every time. I'm going to tell you one last story. Struck home with me. Our son was the only wayward Newman in our family. He's brilliant. He grew up brilliant. He's 6'9". He weighs 340 pounds. He is a genius, literally tested as a genius. So because of those things, he was always bigger than the other kids. He was brilliant. He was always smarter than the other kids. He was one of those that couldn't grasp what was going on in his mind. He didn't know how smart he was. He watched and saw what he was doing, but he couldn't understand why it was happening. He, he stayed in trouble, not big trouble, but little trouble at school. And because of his size in every grade he was in as he grew up, the teacher subconsciously expected, because he was bigger than the other kids, that he would act better just because of that. He would behave more. It was exactly opposite with Caleb. And finally, we found out it wasn't until junior high school, all these things that were causing this within him. We as parents, we held him accountable for everything he did. I mean, we got blasted by our two daughters occasionally because we were too rough on him. But we always held each other and held our kids accountable as they were growing up. So Caleb got involved in some law-breaking, very minor stuff. And finally, he got in deep, deep trouble. Not any kind of violence. You would think a big guy like that would be uh, involved in some kind of violence acts. It wasn't. He got involved in embezzling money from my mother. And it was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. He had tiptoed around some problems with the law and never got in trouble sufficient to, you know, get arrested, charged with something, go to a court, never had had that happen. 
And so when this happened finally, when it came to light, we said it's enough. It's enough. So I called the bank where he had forged checks, checks on my mother's account, who was, by the way, struggling with horrible Alzheimer. She had no idea what was going on in her world, and she worshipped Caleb and his two sisters. I'm thankful she never knew what was going on. And I called the president of the bank and I said, look, your bank has cashed some checks that were forged. The signature was forged. And it was thousands of dollars. And Jason, the the president of the bank, said, well, you know what? I'm sorry, but he did it. And I said, no, you don't understand, Jason. You guys cashed forged checks. You had the signature, my mom's signature, and your people still let Caleb, who they all knew because he was my son, you took the lie that he told you that his grandmother wanted him to come cash these checks to get some stuff for her. You're liable. Your bank is liable. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, put that money back in my mother's account. And he paused for a second. Then he said, Dan, if I do that, you know what's going to happen? And I said, yeah, you're going to have to go after Caleb. And Jason knew, knew Caleb. And I said, it's time he's held accountable. I'll make this long story a little bit shorter. They arrested him, took him to jail. I mean, felony fraud is what the charge was called in the state of Louisiana. It wasn't violent, but it was a big deal. And so he uh, he wanted us to hire him a lawyer. I said, nope. Marianne and I were, I mean, we were, you can imagine how emotional we were. We're, we're a very close family. We always have been. And he's our baby, our 6'9", our 340-pound baby. And we told him, son, these are your choices. You made the choices. You're smart. You're brilliant. You knew there were consequences to pay. Pay the consequences for what you did. So he got a public defender. It was time for sentencing to take place. He didn't get out of jail. We didn't post bail. And, of course, thankfully, there wasn't a large docket, so he only stayed in jail pretrial for a couple of weeks. And, of course, it was a horrible couple of weeks for him because he was learning about life inside. He had always just lived life outside. And none of us really knew anything about the criminal justice system. I found out a lot about it in Louisiana. It ain't good. It's not fair. You'll understand in just a second. So we show up the day for the sentencing. And Marianne and I walk into the courtroom, and Marianne grew up with the judge that's presiding that day. He actually acknowledged us when we walked in the room. And I kind of breathed a sigh of relief. I didn't even think about finding out who the judge was going to be because here's a guy that knows our family. So there was one criminal convict, whatever, that was sentenced before Caleb. This guy third conviction for drugs. This particular time, it was for drug trafficking, for a pound of heroin. He was caught in his car three times. What does that mean? Go to jail for life, third strike. They sentenced him, no jail time, and time served. Now, how is that possible? In Louisiana, that 
is trafficking. That much heroin is trafficking. He got time served. A small fine, too. Wow. Here comes Caleb. First offense. Felony fraud. The judge knew it was my mother and that we wanted Caleb to pay the price. But I hoped, Marianne hoped, we both hoped and prayed he would get he would get a lenient sentence of some kind. And when we saw this heroin guy, third strike for trafficking, he just got time serving a small fine. We thought it was going to be kind of, uh, you know, slap on the hand, maybe a little harder than that. Caleb got three years in prison. So let me tell you what we learned. from. We all learned a lot. And let me just say this. This was 20 years ago. Caleb is doing amazing. He's married. He and his wife have been married for 11 years. They live in Fort Worth. He's the executive chef of a, a big hospital. He's about to be the chef over that entire chain of hospitals. He has 63 employees that work for him now. He's happy as a lark. He's using his brilliance in what he does. He, he comes up with the most amazing things for those doctors that he cooks for. And they just go crazy about it. It's the perfect scenario. He spent three years in jail. He's the first one to tell you he didn't lose anything but some time. But what he got was what he needed to be held accountable so that he doesn't move forward in his life bearing the sense that he's better than anybody else and that he is exempt from accountability. We have to hold each other accountable or we're going to turn into a Nicaragua, a Venezuela, where law enforcement pretty much is gone and even what's there is as corrupt as you can imagine. And in large part, look around the nation, look at the politics of law enforcement. Even though now, Democrats in large part have pulled back away from that defund the police movement that we went through in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. That seeded the ground among far leftists who really don't think law enforcement is good and many don't think it's necessary. And so when you adopt a thought and millions of other people feel the same way as you and are very vocal about it, you begin to think that that thought is the way everybody should think. That direction is where everybody should go. That whole spirit is permeating our nation. And if we don't nip it in the bud, we're going to be a third world banana republic nation ourselves. We got to make a stand. And as tough as it is, we need to make sure that every law, every law for any lawbreaker of each of those laws is held fully accountable and that instead of just making this line a talking point, it becomes the talking point mantra for law enforcement and for every American. If you do the crime, you're going to do the time. And nobody is above the law. 
Papa John is not interested in quality. He's obsessed with it. Because Papa John's a pizza maker. It's what he does. That's why you've got Papa's quality guarantee, signed by the man himself. Love your pizza, or we'll deliver another absolutely free. It's my guarantee. Better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. And right now, save 25% when you spend 25 pounds or more online. I'm Chad Hall, and I'm here with the first ever Silverado ZR2. This is probably the first time you've seen this truck, but I've been racing a prototype version for over a year. We just inspired this pre-production truck you see behind me. Let's go see what it'll do. Copy. It's got phenomenal power, acceleration, good ground clearance, skid protection, and you've got the Multimatic GSSV shocks, so it's just gonna be that much more of a fun truck. You wanna go a little faster, go for it. Copy. It's an amazing truck. You're gonna wanna get your hands on one. Here's the latest traffic report. Looks like miles of trouble-free driving with Napa Auto Parts. Your local Napa Auto Parts dealer in Modesto has a full line of quality parts for your car or truck. Napa Auto Parts keeps America running and Modesto Auto and Truck is ready to keep your vehicle running in tip-top shape for years to come. So if you think your car or truck needs help under the hood, think of Napa Auto Parts at Modesto Auto and Truck Parts, 924 G Street in downtown Modesto. 529-8342. 529-8342. In a world of weapons-grade stupidity, your defense is the truth. TNN, the Truth News Network. We got something coming up tomorrow that I want to talk to you about, and don't let me forget that. It's really important. We're going to have a special online guest a reader of stories at truthnewsnet.org. And his name is Gary Church. He, um, he took issue with a tack that we took in a story that we published, and he wrote a very, very deep comment about it. I replied to his comment, and he responded to me. As a matter of fact, all of those are in the comments section of truthnewsnet.org, our website. If you want to read them, you can. But Gary is going to be on the show with us tomorrow morning, and we are going to discuss peacefully his positions, our position, and I'm going to show you what this world looks like in large part. And I don't know Gary. I don't even know where he lives. I just know that he is a reader, a follower of truthnewsnet.org, And I encourage everybody, read the stories, comment on the stories. How in the world do we ever think we're going to get people to understand what we believe unless we communicate with them? And that's what Gary did. He disagreed with the approach in this particular story. It's the one, the story that was published, um, it's actually communism the left won't. They just say it's socialism. And I believe the story was published either early this month or late last month. But make sure you come aboard tomorrow. Um, Let me do this. Let me read the first one, the very first one that he, he, uh, he sent about that article. 
He said, I'm not even sure where to start with this. You speak of how the government has been trying to tell people to wear a mask, what areas can open, what areas cannot open. And I assume that includes forcing some, depending on their profession, to either get vaccinated or they would be in jeopardy of losing their job. To begin with, we're talking about a virus that was a novel virus, something no one's ever seen before, something that killed well over a million people in the United States alone, not to mention the millions and millions around the world, and did so in very short order. All of that was responsible for the entire world being shut down. I don't understand why you would think that the government stepping in and trying to do whatever they can to save lives and mitigate this after the damage it caused or was causing at the time. You speak as though we're the only country on the planet that has this problem or has this problem now. No one in the government or anyone else enjoyed being shut down, enjoyed watching way over a million people lose their lives to this virus. But what would you have had the government do? Absolutely nothing. What would you have said then? You speak of things like leaning towards socialism, headed for communism. But at the same time, all anyone has ever done for years is complain that the government doesn't put any money back into the U.S. Well, the infrastructure bill is doing just that. And every single Republican voted against it. Should I continue? (laughs) And the very same Republicans now have their hands out waiting for their share of that money so they can put it into their states and then take credit for it. In Michigan alone, a new plant that will build or produce the computer chips that did untold damage to the economy and the auto industry and a whole host of other things will be made here. I'm not in China, or at least we will not depend on China for them anymore. Because of that infrastructure money, you failed to tell people why oil prices were low in 2020. You failed to tell them that the oil reserves were topped off all over the world at the time, at that time, and that helped to lower the prices of fuel. You also failed to tell them that when the pandemic began to hit the demand for oil dropped like a rock in the ocean and fuel prices dropped even further. He goes on and on and on and on. Anyway. Make sure you're back tomorrow morning. I want to hear what you have to say. I'm not going to get, I promise you, and I promise Gary, if you're listening in today, Gary, this will not be contentious from our side, but I think this is the kind of discourse that I hope to have with you tomorrow, Gary. This is the kind of discourse I think that the nation needs to have where people, you may not convince someone else to assume your thought process, But we need to get back to the point. And remember this, our forefathers, nobody laid down and just bowed to another person that has a different opinion about anything political. There were actually fights. There was actually a gunfight and somebody died. So they were really into it all in. And bad things happened. But in the long run, Between now and back then, pretty much we learned to have a political conversation, a real conversation where I express my thoughts to you on one particular thing. You express your thoughts to me. Each of us tries to get the other one to come over to our side. And if and when that happens, and it will, instead of hating each other, 
I mean pure, raw hatred, which is what we see now. We're going to look at each other and say, I understand your perspective. I don't agree with it, but I'm going to honor the fact that you have the right to have your opinion and I want you to feel the same way about me and we're going to move on and work together. Or if we're not going to be close, we'll know each other, we'll know each other and respect each other's opinions. We've got to get back to that. It's nowhere in politics today. I mean, the way you run a campaign now is you destroy your opponent. <laughs> you you may talk a little bit about what you're going to say, but only in the context of what they're going to say. We've got to find ways to have discourse, peaceful, honest, genuine discourse with each other. And it's not just in politics, folks. It's across the spectrum of our lives. We need to deal with the really important issues and not let these issues of getting angry, letting rage consume us, and people dying in violent ways, left and right across the nation. No state, no city, no little town, no little village is exempt. That hatred is flooding our nation. So here's an important thing, a really important thing we need to talk about. Prices rose 8.2% compared to a year earlier. That's the latest consumer price index. Evidence that the price stability sought by the Federal Reserve remains elusive. It's not here. Comparing that with August, prices were up about 0.4% during the month. Core Consumer Price Index, which strips out the really volatile food and energy prices, it rose 6.6% compared with a year ago. That's the highest rate of core inflation since 1981, 41 years ago, surpassing the recent 6.4% highs hit in February and in March. For the month, core prices were up 0.2%. 6%. Now, how does this fare in the and what the economists were looking for? It's worse than they were looking for. And the stock market this morning reflects it. I haven't looked in a few minutes. Let me look right now and tell you where we are. I mean, this is this is just nuts. Well, they were down 500 points, the Dow Jones Industrial Averages. It's made a rebound down 102.26 right now. The average, Dow Jones average is at 29,108. It's been at 35,000 at points during the Biden administration. Why is this happening? It's because no faith in the government, no faith in the government doing the right thing. Businesses, big corporations are watching what's going on in the Biden administration and Almost all the time, the decisions on what to do and what not to do at the big corporate level, those happen way in advance of stuff like this coming because those people have a sense. And it's kind of spooky when we see it play out in the in the markets. But they didn't even expect it this time. So since we've been talking, I told you it was it went to down 120 points. Now it's down 79 points. So it's coming back, which is a good thing. Oh, man, there is so much going on in our lives today. There's a lot of crazy stuff being said, 
Um, speeches being given, this is political season. You know that. It happens every two years. Well, I'm looking at a bunch of things here that I want to play for you that are sounds. These are in interviews, people making statements. Let's talk about this. The Hunter Biden issue. I want to get this out of the way and put it down. I mean, folks, we've been we've been watching this for years, knowing that something's there. We don't really know what's there for these years. We don't know what's really there now. But we do know some things that are absolute. Hunter Biden, then the vice president's son, was heavily involved with foreign government people, foreign corporate people, and it wasn't good involvement. It was bad involvement because it shouldn't have been the son of a vice president, a sitting vice president in the United States, and now, by the way, who is president of the United States, because too much bad stuff can happen in that scenario. Yeah, it's okay for Americans to do business with foreign governments and foreign corporations, but to do that, legally, we are supposed to register with the U.S. State Department. It's it's a FARA. It's called F-A-R-A. Uh, it's an application to the State Department to let them know that you're doing business with these people. That's to make sure that nothing regarding U.S. national security is in trouble. You just think about the stuff with Hunter Biden, his business partner, former business partner, Bob Alinsky, who brought all of this evidence forward to the FBI, and this was before the election And they hit it. They hit it. They being the media. That's another story. But now it looks like there's something in the wind in the investigation of Hunter Biden by the Department of Justice. And people in D.C. that are connected, and I'm not talking about Republicans. It's Republicans and Democrats. They're beginning to wonder and be very concerned. Is the Hunter Biden situation a real national security issue. Has it been one so far? And certainly, is it one now? Because if it is, somebody in our government's got to do something significant. This thing about a gun, I didn't know anything about it, but turns out that when he made my application to purchase a, a gun, what happened was he stayed, I guess you get asked, I don't guess, you get asked the question, are you on drugs, you use drugs? He said no. And he wrote about saying no in right. his book. So I, I, I've, I've great confidence in my son. I love him. And uh, he's on a straight and narrow, and he has been for a couple of years now. And I'm just so proud of him. Ah, President Biden defending his son, Hunter Biden, over reports that he could soon face criminal charges for illegally purchasing a firearm, lying to uh, investigators, and also, uh, of course, uh, tax crimes because of all of the influence peddling. The... Um, Foreign lobbying and making false statements. One report says that these charges could be imminent. That was the Washington Post reported that. Joining me right now is former U.S. Acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker. Matt, thanks very much for being here. When does this become a national security issue in your view? The fact that this family has taken in tens of millions of dollars from officials tied to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, officials in Ukraine uh, and in Russia, among others. 
Well, it, yeah, it's good to be with you this morning. It's already a national security issue, and it has been for years. I mean, ever since Joe Biden was done being the vice president and Hunter uh, appeared to be, uh, you know, kind of running an operation to line Joe Biden's pockets with money from China and the Ukraine and other places, to your point. And so, you know, this continues uh, to, I think, dog the president. Obviously, it's his son. He loves him. There's no doubt about that. You can see the heartbreak in his, uh, you know, visuals uh, from that video. But at the same time, you know, Hunter Biden has been the poster child for the two-tiered system of justice. And I think the American people are expecting something to happen. It probably should have happened uh, a year or two ago when the laptop first surfaced and the FBI had this evidence. But, you know, I guess... You know, this is justice delayed, but maybe it's not justice denied, ultimately. Well, just to be clear, uh, there are emails that we have that this family is lobbying overseas officials while Joe Biden was vice president. So this did not just start after Joe Biden left yeah. the vice president's office, okay? Because, I mean, yesterday we showed an email. Uh, here, here's, uh, you know, the the, uh, the email that they're talking about uh, uh, who gets what from the CEFC partnership, 10 percent equity held by H for the big guy. That's May of 2017. But if you go back to 2015 and 16, when the beginning of this relationship with CEFC happened, Joe Biden was a sitting vice president. Mike, jump in here. Yeah. Um, at, at what point uh, does this go beyond the level of influence peddling? So uh, it, Hunter Biden launches a private equity firm to be funded solely by the Chinese bank, um, Chinese National Bank. And it, he has no track record in private equity. And not only does he have no track record in private equity, he is such a drug problem that all his teeth rotted out from his crack addiction. All right. How does a guy like that get a billion dollars as a sole investor from the CIC and then all of a sudden right after China militarizes the South China Sea? At, at what point does this go beyond influence peddling and to the to, to selling out the interests of the United States for 40 or 50 million dollars for your family? Which would be treason. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, this is public corruption at its worst. And, you know, you're absolutely right. It does date back to when Joe Biden was vice president. We have the visits to the White House, uh, you know, several times from associates and Hunter himself. And so, you know, this is one of those things that ultimately the question I think that needs to be asked of this U.S. attorney who's making this decision and I've made those decisions as a U.S. attorney is, you know, how many of these crimes can you prove? Uh, and, you know, how far do you take this case? And unfortunately, um, you know, based on these reports that we're seeing in the Washington Post and other outlets, it does not appear that this U.S. attorney has much curiosity uh, to get to the bottom of what Mike was pointing out. You know, some of this real bad, um, you know, public corruption at, at, you know, at, is being really kind of nice. I mean, this is like some of the worst possible things where, you know, Hunter appears to be selling you know, uh, access to his dad and yeah. his dad's name. And it's really, uh, you know, needs to be accounted for. And the whole time the FBI is, knows about it, the FBI is aware of it, and they're covering up. They, they hated Donald Trump so much that they cover up potential treason. Now we've got this reveal, special counsel John Durham, revealing that the FBI offered to pay ex-British spy Christopher Steele a million dollars to corroborate allegations made in the now-debunked dossier, Matt. I mean, look, you've covered this so much. Uh, your yeah. reaction to this and the ongoing trial now?
now of Igor Danchenko, who was the subsource of the dossier, who had a three-day interview in January of 2017 with the FBI. And he told them at that time, no, the dossier was made up. We were embellishing. We were having beers with friends and laughing about it. Maria, it goes to your, your first point, which is they wanted to get Donald Trump so badly that they were willing to pay a million dollars to corroborate uh, the Steele dossier. And, you know, this is this trial is all about how they could never corroborate it. And, you know, it's it's I think it's kudos to um, John Durham for actually telling this story uh, through these various trials, but especially the Danchenko trial. I think, you know, as this case lays out, you're going to see how desperate the FBI was uh, to prove these allegations because they wanted it to be true. And in fact, they wanted it to be true so much that they put it in uh, to the Carter paid FISA before they even corroborated it. That's right. Matt, it's great to get your take on all of this. Thanks very much. You know, it's obvious what these uh, things are revealing, and those are scary issues, but it's also revealing something that we as Americans need to force that gets fixed. It takes too long. The wheels of justice at the federal level, they go way too slow. And this kind of stuff that's happening there, there should be swift and thorough and complete action taken especially when there's something this big that does impact us as a nation from the top to the bottom. I can bet you I'm from South Louisiana. I learned when I was a kid, if something quacks and waddles, it's pretty much always a duck. In the case of the Hunter Biden fiasco that has been ongoing now for several years, it's quacking, it's waddling, it's probably a duck. And there are various very serious things that are involved in this and much, much is at stake. Get to the bottom of it. Exonerate Hunter Biden if there was no illegality. But if there was an illegality but there was unethical things that were happening, the American people deserve to know because it was happening while this guy was flying with his daddy on Air Force Two around the world cutting these deals whether or not the deals involved hush money or involved money, quid pro quo dollars that went to the Biden family syndicate. We need to find all that out and put it to bed. Come on, let's get on with life. (laughs) Don't you want to do that? I mean, there are more important things that we have to deal with than politics. But sadly, politics and political things They're involved in pretty much every part of our lives, aren't they? So we've got to make sure they're operating fair and legal and righteously. And we have people that we're paying hefty dollars that have agreed when we hired them. We'll do that. We'll abide by the rule of law. We'll go hold all these people accountable no matter what their political affiliation is. And here we go towards the midterms, 27 days away, 26 now, I think. I don't, it's either 26 or 27. Midterm elections, a lot on the, on the line, a lot is at stake. And so what are the Democrats in the House of Representatives doing? They're reconvening for another televised January 6th committee show. Another one. They got to get something in they got to find a way to denigrate Donald Trump. doesn't matter to them that Donald Trump's not on the ballot in any state. 
on the 8th of November when people go vote? That doesn't matter. The left, in large part, are petrified that Donald Trump might, just might possibly, have a shot to get reelected in 2024. It's 2022. They're worried about what's going to happen two years from now. And they don't have a clue. They never recognized any of the good things that happened to Americans under Trump. Never. Never expected it. But everyone lived in it, relished in it, made lots of money in it, saw their taxes go down, saw the prices in their lives on everything go down under Donald Trump. But they don't want him back. Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming. She's going to return to the center of the January 6th stage when she sits at the dais for her first select committee hearing since losing her re-election bid to a Trump-backed candidate this summer. Cheney used her perch as vice chair of this panel investigating the January 6, 2021 attack at the Capitol to lay out the case that Donald Trump was at the center of it all, a conspiracy they're calling it to keep himself in power, and was ultimately responsible for what happened that day. But the hearing later today marks the first time the committee will assert that argument since one of its own. Cheney was defeated by Trump, his allies, and the movement that believes the 2020 presidential election was tainted by fraud. Now, this was a real, real conundrum in Wyoming. There's only one seat in the U.S. House of Representatives for the whole state. Liz Cheney was a three-term holder of that office. She comes from a political dynasty in Wyoming, lost her primary by more than 30 points this summer to a Wyoming attorney named Harriet Hageman, a Cheney ally. But then she decided Liz Cheney wasn't doing what the people of Wyoming wanted her to do and ran against her. She, Harriet Hageman, called the 2020 presidential election rigged and a travesty. So despite running for re-election in a ruby red state that Trump handily won in 2016 and 2020, by the way, Cheney staked her campaign on the idea that claims of fraud in that election are a threat to democracy, and that the lead advocate of the conspiracy theory, Donald Trump, is a threat to the nation. In her closing campaign ad, Cheney called the election fraud movement a cancer that threatens our great republic and labeled it poisonous lies. She didn't even care about the defeat. She ignored it. Cheney will continue her campaign against Trump later today, but this time around, today's hearing has a personal tone to it. She's taking on the movement that changed the trajectory of her entire political career and put an expiration date on her ability to serve in Congress. January 3rd, she's she's gone. She's toast. And the new Congress, her replacement, Harriet Hageman, we hope, Harriet's got a Democrat opponent on the 8th. But if she wins, she'll take that Wyoming seat in the House of Representatives. So Cheney's primary loss marked the culmination 
of her, I gosh, it, it was more than a year that she crusaded against Trump. And that all began when she came out against his claim of election fraud and voted for impeachment. Following the Capitol riot, reached a bawling point after she joined that select committee investigating the rampage. She's got a buddy. Republican Adam Kinzinger of Illinois also voted for impeachment. He sits on the committee too, but he has opted not to run for re-election. And that leaves Cheney as the sole Republican investigating January 6th while simultaneously trying to court Republican voters. This whole January 6th committee is a sham, and I won't spend a lot of time on it, but it was put together unethically by Nancy Pelosi. It's been slanted towards the left. Republicans had no right to call a single witness. Think about that. Nobody's been cross-examined when they testify before this committee. And so what does that do? Everything that the far left have done to call that kind of witness that they want that's going to lean heavily towards their perspective, which is the orange man did it all. The American people are actually seeing a Hollywood-produced hearing every time it goes on air. They hired a Hollywood producer to put this committee hearing all together to make it sell to the American people. I'm serious. It has been a circus. But it illustrates what I talked about at the beginning of the show. We reject sitting down with each other, giving each other facts. Let's talk about this January 6th, the big lie thing. I must tell you, I have not a single doubt that there was fraud, rampant fraud in the 2020 election. I feel the same way about the 2018 and the 2016 and the 2014 and the 2012. Why do I think it's that way? Because I see and hear too many examples of election fraud. Sadly, though, we haven't seen or heard about these things until long after they occurred and the people that entered this office that they were running for and this fraud probably, almost certainly, in some cases certainly, assisted them in getting those offices. They've been serving and they've been doing whatever they've been doing. You get what I mean? It's too late. It's too far gone. So how do you fix that, Dan? Well, you don't fix it by putting together a sham committee that has a predetermined outcome. They're going to find things to go after Trump with. And I'll promise you this, none of it's going to stick. None of it has sticked. If you think, if you think Donald Trump or any living, breathing human could go through the six years of investigations by the FBI, by a guy that was the FBI director who had a wide open check, no budget. He hired 20 hardcore left national attorneys, had all kind of money. I mean, they, they interviewed hundreds of people, took depositions, seeking ways to find hardcore evidence of wrongdoing criminality by Donald Trump. 
They didn't find it. They tried and they manufactured some to make it look like it. Here we are again. I talked about it. It's way after the fact. We're having hearings today. John Durham is investigating and is trying a guy, Dan Chenko, who was an operative. He's guilty of fraudulently assisting and even being part of the organization of that Steele dossier, which was funded by Hillary Clinton, by the way. And it was all a sham, and it was illegal. It was criminal what they did to try to manufacture a scenario that said Donald Trump was put in office in large part by Vladimir Putin and others in Russia and other overseas players. And so they couldn't find any facts, so they tried to create a scenario to sell it to the public. They criminally got FISA warrant after FISA warrant, James Comey in the FBI. And then we find out yesterday that when they found out, uh uh-oh, there's no there there, there's nothing, we can't get him on this, they paid or offered to pay Danchenko, a million dollars to lie to give them a factual guarantee of the authenticity of authenticity of the Steele dossier. This is our government. This is the biggest law enforcement agency, the most powerful law enforcement agency on the planet. And they were going to illegally give a bribe to try to set up, and this was happening when Donald Trump was president, to set up a sitting American president. They couldn't find any wrongdoing, and so they were going to manufacture it and present it to the court and push it through to get rid of Donald Trump. We're in the January 6th committee era. The exact same things are happening now. They've not run this thing democratically, As I told you, Republicans couldn't call a single witness. Republicans couldn't cross-examine any of the witnesses that came before. The Republicans in the committee aren't given access to any of the evidence, any of the stuff that's presented. Does that sound like the way law enforcement holding members of our government accountable, that's the way it's supposed to happen? It'd just be a ramrod job every time with a predetermined opinion and we know what the outcome is going to be. That's where we're living, folks. I don't know about you, but I hate it. So as they're getting toward their final public hearing today, guess what's going on? Lawyers are criticizing the panel. Why? Engaging in overreach, harassing targets through onerous document production requests. That was one of the comments said as we're getting ready. The committee is currently locked in a battle with Donald Trump's election attorney, John Eastman, on the production of 576 emails that this panel subpoenaed. October 3rd, the committee, in a filing before a federal district judge, argued that Eastman was improperly holding back documents under the guise of attorney-client privilege and attorney work product privilege. Eastman helped prepare legal filings for Trump that contested the results of the 2020 presidential election 
in several states. The committee has contended in part that the filings were an attempt to overthrow the government. Oh my God, I can't even believe we're, we're talking about this. Eastman's attorneys in response accused the committee of trying to undermine the attorney-client relationship. Oh my gosh, they wouldn't do that. His lawyers further stated the court has already ruled on the matter and found in the vast majority of cases for Eastman's claim that attorney-client privilege prevented Eastman from disclosing the documents to the committee. And incidentally, you need to understand this. This committee has no legal authority. It's a political authority that's given to them. They can't tell a judge based on the law, you've got to do this, judge. They can't do that, but that's what they're trying to do. As proof of Eastman's alleged attempts to improperly shield those documents from these investigators, the committee released an email between Trump's election lawyers in which they joked about Trump. One of the email's authors, former Trump lawyer Bruce Marks, accused the committee of releasing the exchange in an attempt to embarrass Trump's lawyers. At the time of the emails on December 30th and 31st of 2020, Professor Eastman, Ken Chesbro, and I were representing President Trump in litigating a U.S. Supreme Court petition filed on December 23rd. Marx told that to Politico. These emails were part of a privileged exchange. Regardless of whether specific tongue-in-cheeks emails were protected by the attorney-client privilege, they were clearly protected by First Amendment rights of political association and free speech. One lawyer who has defended a half-dozen people who have been charged as a result of actions at the Capitol applauded Eastman as attorney for pushing back. The committee's endless speculation does not trump the power of attorney-client privilege. That's attorney Joseph McBride said. McBride has a reputation for fiercely criticizing the government for its detention and prosecution of people regarding the events of January 6th. More people need to stand up to these communist psychopaths. I, for one, am glad that John Eastman is doing that. I can't wait for this January 6th committee to go away. I wish I could speak to all of them right now. I wish I was standing before them and I would tell them very simply, not angrily, do you understand that this is not a courtroom, this is not a federal courthouse, and that you or politicians that were elected to represent the voters who put you here with specific responsibilities. You were not sworn in to be a court to hold anybody and try to make them legally liable for whatever the things that you bring out that they allegedly performed. You don't operate this as it should be democratically, and you're an embarrassment to the American people. Stop this charade and get back to do in your jobs. You owe that to the American people. You owe it to the people that voted for you. You owe it to the people in your states that didn't vote for you. And the reason you owe it is you're just one of 635 fellow lawmakers that swore an oath, they swore an oath 
to do that exact thing to protect, defend, enforce the laws of the nation and take care of the business of the nation, which is not a charade against the former president. The truth. Straight. No chaser. TNN. The Truth News Network. I love going all natural. It just makes me feel better. Nothing between me and my 100% all-natural, juicy, grass-fed beef. Introducing the all-natural burger, the first ever in fast food. With no antibiotics, no added hormones, and no steroids. Only at Carl's Jr. What are you doing? Should we pick him up? He has Bud Light. He has an axe. But he has Bud Light. And an axe. I'm sure there's a reason for it. Hey, buddy. What's with the axe? It's, uh bottle opener. Hop in. Refreshingly smooth Bud Light. Always worth it. Look, here's Bud Light. And a chainsaw. As you know, here at TNN Live, every Tuesday, we have investigative journalist Steve Baker on the show for a segment in our second hour, 10 to 20 minutes, and he's talking about various controversial, very important things that he's involved in in investigative operations. And at the time, he is actually involved in a trial that's happening in Washington, D.C. It's the trial, one trial for all five defendants from the Oath Keepers. You've heard that name, and I guarantee every time you've heard the name, you've heard it in a negative connotation. Why is that? Because the media, at the behest of the Democrats, have labeled the Oath Keepers white supremacists and insurrectionists. Do you know who they are? They're former military people. People that swore an oath that most of went actually to Afghanistan or Iraq to protect the nation. Many of them that came back are hurt. Their lives are forever going to be different. And just because of their service to the nation, they love the nation. And when the left, the Democrats from the top to the bottom, were looking for people they could blame all of the evil that happened on January 6th, and there was plenty of evil going on, that it was at the behest of Donald Trump and fellow white supremacists, including the Oath Keeper. So these five, all five, have been locked up in these D.C. jail cells for more than a year, waiting for, you know, the guarantee in the Constitution of a speedy trial. That didn't happen. And several of them have been disallowed from taking showers and shaving. In fact, most of them were not allowed to shave shave for a year. Now, why would they do this? Because the left wanted them to show up in court 
looking as evil as they possibly could. And we know this, all evil people never shave. They wear beards and or they're skinheads. Steve Baker has been notifying me every day. He is in the trial. He's in the courtroom every day. It's going to take about three weeks to try them all. But yesterday, the prosecution, according to Steve and what he witnessed, was obliterated. They're trying to prop up the fact that these Oath Keekers were actually leaders in the insurrection. And the prosecution is entering, quote-unquote, evidence in the trial that is immediately debunked. He's going to have more about it next Tuesday. So I'm telling you this. I'm telling you about yesterday to tell you this. Make sure that you're here on Tuesday, at least for the 10 o'clock hour, because he'll be giving us the update. And oh, by the way, one of the reasons he is involved in it, because he was the photojournalist that did the most videoing of actual events that happened at the Capitol on January 6th, and news stations around the world were running his videos from the January 6th insurrection. His attorney was contacted by the FBI, notifying his attorney that Steve should be expecting an indictment anytime for his involvement, evil involvement, at the Capitol on January 6th. It's just hard to think you can do this in the United States of America to American people, but they sure are doing it. I don't think, let me just say this, I don't think one of these five, unless they plead out to a deal, they get scared and they plead to a deal. And by the way, anytime you uh, cut a deal with the government, especially in a criminal case, you want to get out of it. It doesn't matter what the evidence is. It doesn't matter what you did allegedly. But if you want to cut a deal with them or they want to cut a deal with you, that deal always has a number one that is mandatory. You must plead guilty to get the deal. That way they can come out in the news and say, he pled guilty. That means he's guilty. They don't, they don't talk about the substance of the deals that are cut ever. In fact, many times the substance, the actual details, are private, never released. So we'll keep you posted, but it, it it's looking so far, the first six days of the trial, it's looking really good for these Oath Keeper guys. And listen, if any of them, if all of them did anything illegal, I'm for them paying the price for what they did. If it's against the law, pay the price. Oh, and by the way, I think that everybody that breaks the law in the nation needs to be held accountable. Everybody. That means from the White House to the southern border of Texas. Every person that commits an illegal act must be held accountable according to federal law. And that means the President of the United States, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And I I think you need to know this. There is a federal statute. It's a violation of federal law law to suborn law-breaking. In other words, to assist or allow people or encourage people to break federal laws, which is exactly what's happening at our southern border. So what does that mean? By the letter of the law, Joe Biden is committing, he's suborning criminality Every single day, as is, 
his Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Have you kept up with what's been happening with Tulsi Gabbard? You know who she is. She was a um, she was a war hero in Iraq, by the way, in the military. War hero. She didn't carry a gun. She was in some other capacity, but she served the nation in, in the Iraq uh, wars that were going on. She served in the U.S. House of Representatives from Hawaii. And when she got elected, she got elected. She was a Democrat. And boy, she, she's a very attractive woman. She speaks very, very well and is a communicator. So from the very beginning, she was a rising star in the Democrat Party. Well, I'm going to let you listen to the facts. But things have turned sour for Tulsi Gabbard. You know why? Because simply, she's not all in for the Democrat far-left ideology. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. So when Tulsi Gabbard won the Democratic Party's primary for a congressional seat in Hawaii 10 years ago, she'd effectively won the seat. Hawaii may be the most liberal out of all 50 states. It is a Democratic state, flat out. It has not voted for a Republican presidential candidate in nearly 40 years. So if you get elected as a Democrat in Hawaii, it's not exactly breaking news. It's standard operating procedure. And yet when Tulsi Gabbard won that primary and then the seat, the Democratic National Party took a deep interest in her. And you can see why. Here was a smart, appealing 31-year-old who knew what she believed and could explain it fluently. And by the way, she was also an Iraq war veteran. So in political terms, Tulsi Gabbard was near perfect. And they got it immediately. Barack Obama endorsed her right away. Nancy Pelosi called her personally and invited Tulsi Gabbard, did you remember this, to speak on the opening night of the Democratic National Convention. And then once she was sworn into Congress in January, the DNC named Tulsi Gabbard vice chair of the National Party. She'd just gotten there. And she was vice chair of the DNC. And then, of course, the media played its prescribed role. If Nancy Pelosi likes you, well, so do they. So fawning profile after fawning profile emerged. If you lived in Washington at the time, you remember it very well. Here, ladies and gentlemen, the future of the Democratic Party, Tulsi Gabbard. In case you don't remember, here's a selection to jog your memory. Watch out for the next superstar. Here we it's, go. Here we go. Talking about here off air always. Hey, listen, here we listen. go. Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard is a rising star in this party. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard should be here tonight. Uh, the reality is we do not have enough young veterans in this party, enough young women in this party, enough people of color in this party. You're considered a rising star in the Democratic Party. You had a position of leadership in the Democratic National Committee. Tulsi's story is really, I think, tailor-made for Hollywood. I half expect Natalie Portman to be vying for the role any day now <laughs> because this story is not to be believed. Tulsi Gabbard, she is going to be the one to watch tonight at the DNC. And Tulsi Gabbard, she's an Iraq War veteran. Yeah. Yesterday she was promoted yeah. from captain to major in the Hawaii National yeah, Guard. Yeah, so, so she certainly is a rising star in the yeah. The fact that she's not here yeah, tonight for whatever bad. reason is unfair. I don't know, but in a battle, I want her in my trench. I can hear that <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. Did you hear that? She's a rising star. Hollywood's going to make a movie about her. I want her in my trench. It's pretty hard to believe now, but that was the absolute consensus among Democratic Party sycophants until 2016. In 2016, as if by command from above, the fawning stopped abruptly, replaced initially by silence, and then by howls of scorned rage. So what happened in 2016? Well, Donald Trump was elected president. And then a few days later, displaying the independence of spirit that Democrats claim to love in young women, but actually despise more than anything, 
Tulsi Gabbard decided to talk to the new president about an issue that she cared about, which was U.S. policy towards Syria, a country that, again, Gabbard was virtually alone in pointing out has an awful lot of Christians in it, so maybe we should pay attention. As she put it at the time, quote, I felt it was important to take the opportunity to meet with the president-elect now before the drumbeats of war that neocons have been beating drag us into an escalation of the war to overthrow the Syrian government. Woo, we can't say that in Washington. Maybe she didn't know. But they told her, stop, let the adults do it. But Gabbard didn't seem to care. A few weeks later, she went personally to Syria. She was a member of Congress, you can do that. And she wanted to see conditions for herself. And then while she was there, she met with the Syrian president, Bashar al-Assad. And that was it, it was over. Whether Tulsi Gabbard knew it or not, her career as a rising star within the Democratic Party came to a complete, abrupt, and final halt. She had done the one thing you're not allowed to do. She committed the one unforgivable sin, which is to question permanent Washington's foreign policy. You can't do that, and everyone knows it. And if you look around, you can see that no one does do it. They always tell you how radical Sandy Cortez is, Rashida Tlaib. Would they do that? No way. AOC may be a socialist, but in the end, she's with Bill Kristol and Liz Cheney on Team Raytheon. She does not cross that line because you're not allowed to. But Tulsi Gabbard is someone who had served in the U.S. military, in fact, was still serving in the U.S. military, was an elected member of Congress, decided, why shouldn't I say what I think? And so she did. And for doing that, overnight, her fellow Democrats accused Tulsi Gabbard, the combat veteran you'd want in your foxhole, of committing treason against the country she was serving. Hillary Clinton went even farther than that. Speaking of conspiracy nuts, Hillary Clinton way crazier than Alex Jones ever thought of being. She claimed the Russians were grooming Tulsi Gabbard as some kind of Manchurian candidate. You want to listen to lunacy? Listen to this. I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic <laughs> primary and are grooming her to be the third party candidate. She's a favorite of the Russians. Well, that's just completely whacked. Was she a crisis actor too? What a lunatic. But no one noticed because everyone was saying it. The LA Times, which at one point was an actual newspaper, accused Tulsi Gabbard of, quote, talking like a Russian asset, maybe a spy. So the years went by and Tulsi Gabbard decided to run for president, still as a Democrat, as she had been in her entire time in Congress. She'd always been a Democrat, of course, the vice chair of the DNC. And so she wound up in a presidential debate in October of 2019, and she responded to the smears against her. Watch this. New York Times and CNN have also smeared veterans like myself for calling for an end to this regime change war. Uh, just two days ago, the New York Times put out a, an article saying that I'm a, a Russian asset and an Assad apologist and all these different smears. This morning, a CNN commentator said on national television that I'm an asset of Russia. Completely despicable. As president, I will end these regime change wars by doing two things. Ending the draconian sanctions that are really a modern day siege, the likes of which we are seeing Saudi Arabia wage against Yemen that have caused tens and thousands of Syrian civilians to die and to starve. And I would make sure that we stop supporting terrorists like Al-Qaeda in Syria, who've been the ground force in this ongoing regime change war. They called her a Russian asset. Now that slur is so common that we don't really think about it, but think about it just for a second. This is a transparently patriotic person, an elected member of Congress who was serving in the US Army, who's also, by the way, one of the nicest people 
in all of Washington who is making traditionally liberal points about war. Not that all wars are bad or war is never necessary. She's participated in wars personally. She's merely saying, and has said dozens of times on television, that wars that don't benefit the United States are probably a bad idea for us to engage in. That's all she said. And for that, she was run out of town. Now, why is that? Why is that such an unacceptable thing to say? Well, of course, because there's a pattern here. Certain people do benefit from wars and they want more. So three years after that debate, another U.S.-funded regime change war is underway. And that is exactly what's happening. This time, our stated goal is removing not some third world dictator who might have WMD, but removing a guy who was the world's largest nuclear stockpile, 6,300 nuclear warheads, Vladimir Putin. And once again, because Tulsi Gabbard has questioned the wisdom of this complete lunacy, Democrats are accusing her of working for Vladimir Putin. So if you want to know what the Democratic Party actually believes, don't listen to what they say. Oh, we want empowered women of color who are also veterans. No, they don't. They want people who support regime change war. That's their red line. That's the one thing they will brook no dissent on whatsoever. If you're going to be a Democrat in Washington, D.C., there's one order that overrides every other thing about whatever position you're going to hold. You've got to kiss the ring of whoever is in charge at the DNC. I'm serious. It's gotten that difficult to even do anything else. There are plenty of good Democrats in the U.S. Congress. There always are. Good people, honest people. Yeah, we differ on a lot of political matters, but at the core, they're good people. Same thing about Republicans. But regarding Republicans, there are some bad Republicans in Washington, D.C., just like there are some bad Democrats. That's not the point of government. Government exists to do what? to govern whoever they are elected to represent. Govern the government of the people. That means working with everybody in leadership, everybody in government that works on the same level as you or even other levels as you. And the big thing, the final thing on this that I think is so very important, it's not about you. Government is not about you. It's not about your title. It's not about the power you have over others. It's not about the political contributions that you get and the ones that you want. That is fluff. What it's about is preserving this republic, keeping this republic going. Yeah, there are things that need to be tweaked from time to time. Yeah, you're in, re, you're in responsibility position for doing just that. But the bottom line is, in everything you do, you're a servant of the people who hired you. And we can fire you. We do that with elections. There's a big election, speaking of big elections, going on on the 8th. In Ohio, Democrat Tim Ryan is taking on J.D. Vance, the Republican. Tim Ryan, by the way, is he's currently a congressman. He wants to step across the aisle. He wants to go across to the Senate. So they had a heated debate this week. 
And um, Ryan was confronted, the Democrat was confronted, asked to explain his comments earlier this year when he told MSNBC's Morning Joe, Joe Scarborough, that the exhausted majority needed to kill and confront the extremist Republican movement. This is, this is just what we were talking about. Attack, attack, attack. Now, Ryan, during the debate this week, doubled down on his comments, including Vance and the group of people he labels as extremists. Kill and confront the extremist movement of which J.D. Vance, unfortunately, is a part of. Ryan said that in a debate. Trying to frame Vance for some of his past comments added, who says that the President of the United States is intentionally trying to kill people with fentanyl? Who says that the election was stolen? Who runs around with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who wants to ban books? He runs around with Lindsey Graham, who wants a national abortion ban. You're running around Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's the absolute looniest politician in America. Ryan, those were quotes from Tim Ryan looking to list off lawmakers Vance has come in contact with or commented on on the campaign trail. This is a dangerous group. We do need to confront it, and that's why I'm running to represent the exhausted majority, Democrats, Republicans, and independents against the extreme. Vance, during the question before, also confronted Ryan for his past comments, saying Tim Ryan, who runs all these TV commercials, saying that he wants to appeal to Trump voters, wants to appeal to Republicans, also says that he wants to kill and confront the MAGA movement. That's not exactly the rhetoric of a unifier, J.D. Vance, the Republican said. So that was a quote. What you just heard, this is what I was referencing early in the show today. It's time to get past all this crap. It's time to stop spending all of our resources, our time, our energy, our efforts, and our money demonizing anybody and everybody that has a different opinion than yours regarding political matters. And start just doing what's right for the American people calling out people to do what's right for the American people and recognizing you've got differences. And it's okay to have those differences. Everybody doesn't have to think the same way about everything. In fact, that First Amendment thing, you know, that thing that uh, our forefathers, our legislators, felt that they needed to enshrine for the government to always know especially these 10 amendments. Those belong to the people. You can't touch them. And one of those is the freedom to speak your mind and not have to worry about your government stepping in because someone has a different opinion. The First Amendment, free speech. It's real. He'll never let you fall to the lies. Your bulwark against the tide of fake news. Dan Newman, TNN, The Truth News Network. What is Coca-Cola? Is it an excuse to get together? Since 1886, Coca-Cola has been passing on smiles from generation to generation. 
we've been giving kids scholarships. Like the early birds and the all-nighters. And you get to enjoy what matters most. Coca-Cola. Drink up. Nowadays, it's more important than ever to know the value of a dollar, or three, or four, or five, or even six. New Dunkin' Go-To's, now with brews. Tasty breakfast combos that give you more bang for your bucks. Get a wake-up wrap with sausage and a medium-hot coffee for $3. A bacon with cream cheese spread and a medium-hot coffee for $4. A bacon, egg, and cheese croissant with a medium-hot coffee for $5. Or a power breakfast sandwich and, you guessed it, a medium-hot coffee for $6. Dunkin' Go-To's, now with brews. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Exclusion apply. Limited time offer. By the way, there's a trial going on of the Parkland school shooter down in Florida, and a verdict has been reached, and the jury is about to announce a decision on whether that shooter should get the death sentence. Now, that's in Florida. Just so you know, the death sentence in Florida is alive and well. It's a big deal going on down there. There is so much pain that goes along with that, besides the the, the people, you know, whose kids were killed. That's horrible. I can't even imagine losing a child, especially losing a child to violence. Sadly, it happens, and it happens too often. But if uh, if that verdict is reached and announced in the next half hour before we go off the air, I'll be watching closely, and we'll share it with you. That's a conversation of some other things, very important things that we all need to think about. So, Fetterman, I don't think I'll ever forget the name Fetterman. He's the lieutenant, uh, the lieutenant general of the state of Pennsylvania. I think that's the political post that he holds. He's running for that empty U.S. Senate seat, and he's running against Dr. Oz. Fetterman is, he's an enigma to me. And no, that's not a racial term, an enigma. <laughs> that means it's something or somebody that, It's hard to understand or explain because it's so out of the norm. He's a strange guy. He's a big guy. He's about the size of my son, 6'9". I think Fetterman's 6'8". But he towers over people, and he he has a shaved head, and he has a goatee. And he dresses. He always, almost always wears a pan of, uh, you know, pants, jeans, or whatever, and a hoodie. And he likes to keep that hoodie up over his head. That is some kind of sight when you see him walking around. Sadly, during the beginning of his campaign, he had a stroke. And it has obviously impacted his, his uh, some things in his body. He does that to everybody. You can't, hardly ever, anybody has a stroke and goes unaffected. And so it's a big deal. He's running for a U.S. Senate state. He apparently has some uh, conversational uh, issues. He struggles sometimes to get his words out. And that's an important thing for anybody. We have a president that pretty much nobody can credibly say is not cognitively declined. And you just heard me stumble when I said the word cognitively. I guess I'm declined. (laughs) But anyway, Fetterman... 
His is very, very much more obvious and important right now because whoever fills that seat, that Senate seat in the state of Pennsylvania going forward could be the deciding vote on numerous critical issues that come before the U.S. Senate. Now, in this whole thing, he's being Fetterman, as is Dr. Oz and every other candidate that's running for federal office. They're in front of news people all the time. So NBC News correspondent Dasha Burns doubled down on her observations about the health of John Fetterman. She previously said that Fetterman had, her word is, difficulty understanding her questions when she interviewed him in an exclusive NBC News interview. Fetterman had to read her questions off a monitor due to his auditory processing issues that are caused by that stroke he had back in May. Today's show co-host Savannah Guthrie pushed back against Dasha Burns' observations, saying that many journalists who have communicated with Fetterman personally have found he's in good condition. Yeah, and Savannah, that's completely fair. That was their experience, Burns said. We can only report our own. I will say it's important to note that according to the campaign itself, our team was the first to be in the room with Fetterman for an interview rather than through remote video conference, and myself, my producer, and our crew did find that small talk before that captioning was difficult because of his auditory processing issues. And she added that stroke experts determined Fetterman's auditory processing issues did not mean he had cognitive or memory impairments that he could reach a full recovery. He was able to understand Burns' questioning once the captioning had been provided. Then, oh my gosh, journalists jumped to Fetterman's defense following Burns' remarks about his auditory processing issues. Vox's Kara Swisher said Fetterman had no issues with his speech. New York Magazine writer Rebecca Treister and podcast host Brian Tyler Cohen also chimed in, quote, sorry to say, but I talked to John Fetterman for over an hour without a stop or any aids, and this is just nonsense. Maybe this reporter is just bad at small talk. Fetterman's problems with his auditory processing and slurred speech, they have sparked skepticism out the wazoo about his ability or inability to serve in the Senate if he wins the race against his opponent, Republican Dr. Oz. After returning to the campaign trail in August, Fetterman pulled out of five scheduled debates, leading Oz's communications director, Brittany Yannick, to call him a liar, a liberal, and a coward. So here we go. We've got a slight issue here, and it needs to be resolved. I am one of the, I believe it's a real issue. If I'm a taxpayer, a citizen that lives in the state of Pennsylvania, I want my representatives in Congress, especially the U.S. Senate, I want them to be hitting on all cylinders all the time. And if they have problems and it's going to in any way impact the job that they're going to do for me, they've got to go. I mean, that's just the way it is. It has nothing to do personally with the fact that he's 6'8". He looks like Lurch. He dresses like Lurch. And he's having a problem with auditory decline, which everybody has agreed is there, 
How is that, the aftermath of a stroke, going to impact him serving in the U.S. Senate? I have the right to express my opinion, and I want to know. I want to hear. I want to see for myself if it really is bad. How do you do that? How do you illustrate that? Get in front of television cameras and debate Dr. Oz. Now, they have one scheduled later this month, but it's just a week and a half before the elections. That's a pretty big deal because absentee and mail-in balloting has already occurred. There are thousands of votes that have already been cast, and they don't know, those that are voting for John Fetterman, they don't know if he is physically and mentally capable to do the job. And just getting a chance to see and listen for themselves and see him having a debate with Dr. Oz, I think that would be a, a good thing. I think it would be. So when this came up yesterday, Fetterman responded. And he responded to this Dasha Burns thing. And um, he was questioned about the debate upcoming. And he was asked if he was going to show up to debate his opponent, Dr. Oz. That's October 25th, no matter what. And he responded when he was asked, are you going to show up on October 25th no matter what? He responded one word, no. And the debate is another opportunity to be transparent to voters. Huh? Yeah, there's something going on there. He then responded to a follow-up question and said, of course I'm going to show up for the debate no matter what happens. I just thought I'd throw that in. That's a little bit strange, don't you think? And there's a really big story that you'll understand why nobody has been talking about it. You know, we have this problem with big tech. I mean, all of them. They make no bones about it anymore. They're in the tank. They're going to do everything they can do with their private, corporately owned social media platforms to help the Democrats that the far left want to see get elected in every slot in the nation. They want to help them in every way. And sometimes that means big tech going after their political opponents. Now, you know what PayPal is. Who would think that somebody would try to make PayPal political? But PayPal is owned by one of these social giants. And all of a sudden, PayPal comes out dramatically taking political action in private transactions of conservatives. Welcome back. Take a look at PayPal stock this morning. It's down about one and a third percent. The company is backtracking now on a recently announced policy that it would fine users $2,500 for anything that they deem as misinformation. It sparked backlash on social media. So yesterday I spoke with the former Teal Capital president, Arizona Senate candidate Blake Masters, about the plan. Watch. We need to uh, ban companies at that level, at that size, especially if they're touching banking or if they're in social media, we're going to ban these companies from discriminating against users because of the political content of their speech. You can't let a non-bank lender at the size of PayPal just discriminate against people and decide what's misinformation and find them? No, I'm sorry. We should make that unthinkable. And we're going to make that illegal once we take back uh, Congress and the White House, certainly. 
Well, joining me right now is Texas Congressman Roger Williams. He's a member of the Financial Services Committee and vice uh, ranking a member of the Small Business Committee. Congressman, uh, has PayPal been living under a rock with all of the misinformation coming out of this administration? <laughs> uh, and now they're going to decide what's information and what's misinformation. Your reaction? Well, it's pretty unbelievable that uh, they would do this. Uh, but I, I was glad to see how the uh, uh, people f really fired back to them, said yeah. we're not going to do business with you anymore, and they, and they withdrew it. But I, th I think, Maria, I think that's what you're going to see across this country come November. There's a lot of people that have just been uh, uh, attacked and freedom of speech and all this kind of, kind of thing. We're going to see the results in voting uh, uh, in November. But, but the fact that they would even think they could do it and, and squelch conservative voices is still pretty unbelievable in this country. It is hard to believe that that kind of, uh, I don't even know what you call it, but that kind of action would be taken against anybody politically. A private company taking action, pretty significant, $2,500 fine if they, if they, the social media giant that is far left in their political leaning and they make no effort to hide it. In fact, they promote the fact they are in their sole determination, they're going to determine somebody taking conservative action or saying conservative things, and they're going to charge those people who are doing business using PayPal's operations. In fact, millions of people do that. I'm one of them. Find them $2,500 for quote-unquote misinformation. Speaking of information, the Parkland shooter the verdict was reached. He was being tried and he was charged with first-degree murder charges. The jury came back. They could not reach a death sentence unanimous decision. The jury couldn't. So he will serve life in prison in Florida for the killing of all those kids in Parkland, Florida. When stuff like this happens, nobody wins. Everybody loses. This guy's lost. He's lost his life. I mean, he lost his life when he did what he did. Yeah. But there's no chance for him. He's going to spend the rest of his life behind bars. It's going to be ripple effects through everybody. His family, the community, his relatives, the school children, the teachers, all of that. It's just horrible when stuff like this happens. Now, again, I told you about tomorrow on the show, we're going to have, for the first time ever we've done this, somebody wrote a comment, a very intelligible, thought-provoking comment to one of the stories that was published last week, as a matter of fact. And I replied to him, and he replied to me, and I told him, I said, look, the best way to do this is let's have a conversation I respect the fact you believe what you do, and I, I, I'm sure you respect the fact I pinned the story, so I'm sure you respect the fact that the story is my story, which means it's full of my opinion. Why don't we talk this out as two adults? Let's just, you, we'll, we'll do a call in, and you come on the show, and you talk about it. He said, absolutely, I'll come on the show on Friday. So, his last name is Church. I have no idea who he is. I have no idea where he lives. I think he lives in North America. We have a lot of people that listen from other countries, but I believe he lives in the United States. 
and we're going to coordinate the exact details, the final details. But make sure you're for, here for the show tomorrow. I think it'll be something different. In fact, I'm pretty sure it will be. But I want to exercise what I've been talking to you about, which is communicate. Don't demonize. Respect each other's opinions because we're all in this for the same reasons. We'll see you tomorrow. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a great day. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to TNN Live. Yes, what?